welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. Thank you to FIU's Disability Resource Center for providing transcription services. This episode is a collaboration with SW Cares. Social Work Coalition for Anti-Racist Educators, who are doing phenomenal work to transform social work. SW Cares members Charlotte Yearwood and Laura Hogue dropped serious knowledge on episode 27, White Supremacy in Social Work. I'm so excited that Charlotte is back on doing the work, this time as the host. Charlotte facilitates a discussion with a group of amazing black social workers who talk about their experiences with social work education. I chose to pass the mic to Sharla because I wanted to give this platform to black social workers to have a conversation without white people, so that it could be really open without any filter I may impose on it when I'm interviewing. I'm grateful to Sharla for doing this and to Andre, Deshana, Deanna, and Vivian for their time, courage, and vulnerability. They are giving the social work world a gift with this episode. Something that jumped out to me about their stories is how social work education is so violent towards black students on so many levels. This has to change. The guest social media and contact info, along with Cash App and Venmo accounts, are in the show notes, so please give them support. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Hello. I'm so excited. So excited to see all you beautiful brown folks. So um, I'm going to go around and just ask that everyone introduce themselves and give your pronouns. I know there's quite a bit of us on the call. There's five of us. Vivian? Hey, everyone. My name is Vivian. My gender pronouns are she, her, and hers. You heard. And And what social work degrees do you have? I hold a master's of social work degree. Awesome. Andre, who are you? And what are your pronouns? And what are you in a program? What social work education do you have? Yes, my name is Andre Harris. My pronouns are him and his. Um, I hold a BSW and I am about to transition into an MSW PhD dual degree program. Deshana? Um, So my name is Deshana. I currently have an MSW and I am in a PhD program, a PhD in social work program. Deanna. Hi, my name is Deanna. I use they, them pronouns and I have a bachelor of social work degree. Thank you guys all so much for agreeing to be here with me and to have this conversation. Like I really honor and appreciate your vulnerability to have this conversation. Um, because I think it's something that we all know about and we all talk about together, but we don't always talk about it in mixed company. So thank you guys for being open enough to share your experiences um, with the social work community. So let's start with you, Deanna. In your experience, does social work and specifically social work education have a problem with racism and white supremacy? So I would say that's a resounding yes. There's a really big problem, especially with Um, white supremacy and not addressing it. And so I see it pop up in three ways with not acknowledging our history, um, focusing on diversity, but not focusing on like racial justice. And then with like the kind of like where the, we're already like a liberal progressive, you know, education, like already a progressive 
profession, so we don't need to do anything else. So I would say definitely yes, and it pops up in those three ways. Yeah, I can I can totally uh, see how it pops up in all those ways. Andre, what are your thoughts on that? So me, I I've been looking at this uh, question for days now. I'm trying to formulate an answer, <laughs> but. I, I first of all I want to preface and say that I attended an HBCU, so I think that kind of skews my answer just a little bit. <laughs> I love. It. However, I will say, being someone who is black, um, and even in an HBCU, our our curriculum and you know what we're taught, in my opinion, and in the p- opinions of my mentors and my professors, have been that we have taken. Uh, theories and we've taken um, best practices that um, were created by people who were not of people of color um, and they were tested on people who were not of color. Um, and so we have a lot of these theories and best practices that we're trying to implement in households or communities of color and wonder why a lot of times they don't work. Um, and so I've I appreciate my HBCU education for allowing me to understand that um, it's going to take uh, people of color, Black people specifically in this um, conversation, to create, um, to research, create um, uh, uh, curriculum and best practices to implement in households and communities of color. So I hope that answers your question in some form. Oh, you blew that question out of the water. No. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate your HBCU experience because I want to make sure that that one does not get muddled. And and so thank you for for bringing that perspective. Um, Vivian, what's your experience and what's your overall perception of racism and white supremacy and social work and social work education? For me, it's more like the ownership sitting in class was a consistent experience of, you know, black, you know, people are those who are always on the recipient side of services, not necessarily the provider, you know, the theories that they were following, any of that. Um, In fact, it's a complete erasure and acknowledging that, you know, as Rachel Cargo said a few weeks ago on the conversation, uh, they're trying to make white heroes my heroes. Um, In fact, one of the things that we did with the curriculum committee that we built was just point out, like, my heroes are Ida B. Wells. My heroes are my moms. My heroes are my, you know, teachers and the ladies at church who develop resources, you know, for the black community. And none of that ever got highlighted in white classes. Um, It was a difference when I took the black social work class that was, you know, taught by an awesome professor, Dee Price, just known, call her Dee Price today. But if she listening, she know who I'm talking about. And that class was more affirming, but it was still a struggle to be in the class because we still have white students who unfortunately are still developing their racial analysis and learning how to conduct themselves in black spaces. And so sometimes we can just be watching black brutalized bodies in a clip and they'll be on their cell phones. Like you can't be insensitive to this, right? You know, if I have to watch this, so do you. Um, And then oftentimes if we read black books in a lot of white classrooms, the experience was, well, we read just mercy, but we didn't conduct a racial analysis and having it taught by a white professor who also struggled to teach that content was also a challenge of, you know what, throw the whole class away. I'm just going to leave class today and come try this again tomorrow. Right. 
um, that learning should be enjoyable and it should challenge you. But we were not really creating space for that because, of course, white fragility is rampant. And it, it just saddens me because they still get their degree, but they're out here causing harm in the program. They're going to cause harm to the clients. Yeah, I think we all have had similar experiences. Um, Deshauna, you want to give your perspective? Yeah. Um, so I just realized on the last question, I did not um, give out my pronouns. So my um, the pronouns that I use are she, her, and hers. Um, and in terms of if we have a racism program problem in social work education, um, of course, the answer is yes. Um, to touch, to kind of touch back on where Vivian left off, um, I've been to two social work schools. And um, at one of them, I experienced racism over and covert among my fellow students. And at the other, I experienced racism um, among faculty members and staff and administrators. And so to touch on students, to have students in in your classes say extremely problematic things and have um, no one check them. And when you check them, (laughs) you're the problem. And when you go to people about like the fact that these things are problematic, no one really does anything. And you know that people are going to go out into the world and cause harm to their communities because everyone likes to believe that they're going to go out and after they get their terminal degree and like do private practice in these really like white communities. But what happens is they end up like in defects, <laughs> um, which um, disproportionately has black kids in its system and black families in its system where um, they don't, end up working with white people. They end up working with people that like me. They end up working with Latinx Mm -hmm. people and they cause like unnecessary additional harm um, to our communities. And there's nothing that you can do except for watch because it's not like social work programs do a great job of like really weeding people out. (laughs) Um, there's There's no procedure in place to be like, you know what? This may or may not be a good fit. So we suggest that you don't. We're just going to cut. We, there's no suggest, There's no process in place for programs to cut ties with students, um, which I think is a gap that somebody should fill. Um, but then on the other hand, my experience with um, faculty who are problematic uh, is that, a, number one, the power differential and calling out, hey, that was racist. I really wish you wouldn't say stuff like that in class uh, or you just shouldn't say stuff like that in class or um, you shouldn't show things like that in class Um, or we shouldn't have to read this stuff in class Um, and not just the things that you read and watch um, and say, but the things that you don't read and watch and say. So whenever um, I am an early I am a self-labeled early career critical race theorist. Um, And I have, when everyone asks me about that, um, I tell them that everything I know about critical race theory, I taught myself. Um, I am completely self-taught. I did a presentation in my HBSE class. It was an extra group 
project presentation. It was not, it was in the syllabus, but not as something that was to be taught by the instructor, but to be taught by students as a group project. Um, when I transitioned into another program, um, I taught it during my first semester. I taught it during my second semester. <laughs> um, I just taught it during my last semester. <laughs> so every time critical race theory is taught in my social work education, I'm the one that's teaching it. And that's problematic because no one is out here hunting for CBT resources. We're not hunting for motivational interviewing um, and all that jazz. And so it's just like the erasure and the attack, um, the abuse that Black students and Black faculty have to go through um, and social work is is a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up some really good points. So playing off of what you guys are talking about, I'm thinking of, about experiences that I'm going to put myself in there too from my MSW experience. The experiences that we have interacting with our peers, it's not just the it's not just the faculty and the school and the institution, but peer interactions that we have in the social work classroom um, around race. And then also the response that we get from the faculty leading those classes. Um, does anybody have a situation that they would like to share? Deanna, tell me about it. I don't necessarily have a specific situation, but the way that you phrase that question made me think of like frequently when we like are like pre-social work majors about to like actually start the program there's a lot of talk about gatekeeping and like our professors and like the social work like administrators are like the gatekeepers to our profession and I mean I think to me it like comes across as a very like white supremacist tactic of like okay when people are like people in our program are telling me that they support Trump that if they're if people are trans that they're not going to accept it like I've had my classmates get mad at me for talking about abortion and there's no gatekeeping to that. There's no saying that policy, like that belief that you have, you can have it, but is not in line with social work. But, you know, God forbid somebody mess up a comma in their application, then they won't even get into the program. So it's just like, there's a lot of gatekeeping. And while I think there's worth and like making sure that the people who are coming into this profession are the people that we want in this profession, to me, that doesn't mean that like, people need to have the right grammar or like interview well, it means they need to like actually care about other people. But when we center it on like professionalism, that's where a lot of like the white supremacy and like pre-social work really pops up and popped up for me. Preach, preach. Vivian. Yes, Deanna. Um, one of my biggest frustrations with my experience in my program really was around finances and, you know, talking to peers, peer interaction is big. I applied to a particular special scholarship program and got denied. One of my peers told me that he didn't even apply for the program, but they had read his resume and contacted him and told him to apply. And that's how he got in. He was a white male, you know, with a lot of support already. I also noticed that there were white people inside the new African-American leaders of social work scholarship program. And I'm just like, every scholarship is basically designed for white people. And yet, you know, every time they have an opportunity to support a marginalized identity, we can't even have the little support that's made for us. And it's frustrating because it makes, you know, social work degrees really inaccessible for marginalized identities. Because as Deanna said, I'm in a profession of helping people. I genuinely care about people. What does me, you know, putting a comma, having the perfect resume have to do with that? 
And it goes back to like thinking that should we have like social work prep programs to assist students in writing these impeccable applications to get the money when most of these people that get it don't need the money, honestly. It's a very problematic thing because it's not just the anger about rejection. It's like multiple rejections from scholarships. So I'm like, well, who's judging these scholarships? You know, of course it's white people again. So how is that really equitable? And how is that moving the profession forward? Yeah, I I definitely hear you. So something that I'm thinking about is what are what are some of those structural things that are limiting access to social work education for black and brown folks and speaking to things like the professionalism and I know that that plays out and that gatekeeping it plays out a lot in field education how do you feel like field has been is shaped around racism and racist practice? How do you feel like your school, your field instructor, the agencies? Tell me a little bit about that, those connections, Andre. You must have been able, you must have been able to see I had a response to what you just said. Um, So again, I think I have a totally different perspective because again, I am an HBCU grad. Um, I was playing out. <laughs> it's funny because when, when you all were asking about, uh, do you want to be confidential about what you want to say? I'm like, no, now that I'm about to say something I didn't think about, I'm like, oh, maybe I should have been confidential, but I won't mention names or institutions. Um, so when I was in field, I was placed, um, at a, at a agency that was just terrible. Period. Um, the direct, the executive director was terrible. Her staff were terrible, um, except two or three. Um, that and, and then it it just was not a good experience for me. And then the other people who were placed there as well. So, um, and again, if if somebody from my institution listens, they'll know who I'm talking about. But it is what it is. So the late the executive director of the place I got placed at, I, we found out was a staunch Donald Trump supporter. Um, even though she was of Latinx heritage, um, she loved her some Donald Trump. Um, and so you could understand how that would affect the way she treats uh, Black students from a Black school. Um, we had one other Hispanic older guy, he probably was in his sixties, who was placed there with us. Um, and you could see the dynamics between them, how she treated him and how she treated the black student. So I say all of that to say, um, we had a big fiasco. I'll be, I'll be on here all day if I went through it, but we had a big fiasco. Um, and I was the only one who really uh, went to up the chain of the command. So I went to my field instructor, my field liaison. I went to everybody. I went to the director of the BSW program. I went to the dean, the assistant dean. I let everybody know about our mistreatment. And honestly, I did not feel like they were advocating for the student. Um, I felt like they were advocating for the executive director of this agency. And I, I honestly was very disappointed. Um, I love my university. I love my alma mater. I love the school of social work that I attended. But in that instance, I just felt like I was failed. Um, and I think when 
I think systemically when students of color um, communicated grievance um, and it, I never just set out, said the grievance was racist. I was, I never said, geez, this is, I'm experiencing racism and that's the problem. But there was noticeable racial undertones. So I had, you know, it wasn't like they didn't know, um, especially when I told them she was a Trump supporter and some of the things that she said made us uncomfortable. Um, so my field director came and met um, and during the meeting, it was my field director, the agency uh, director, me and a liaison. The director attacked me more and believed the agency director more than she believed me. So that kind of really hurt. And I really feel that schools need to pay attention when students complain, because I just don't think a normal student would just take their time to make up a situation just to complain about. Like nobody's about to just wake up in the morning and say, oh, I just want to complain and just pull something out here. So I think it's very important that administration in schools, um, especially in schools of social work, when you have students in the field and they say that their field is problematic, please take it serious. Even if you think it's not serious, um, investigate a little better. Um, and, and me, I feel like it's very, uh, it was, it was just a lot of anti-blackness going on. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get with it. That really put a bad taste in my mouth. And I have to kind of ramble myself in because I don't ramble about it all day, but I really think that admin should be a little more sensitive, especially in social work. Cause we're taught to, you know, our code of ethics drills in our, our it's drilled in our head. So I, I was flabbergasted that you could teach about the code of ethics, but then you're not really pre practicing what you preach. Um, you weren't advocating on my behalf, and I, I, that really, really bothered me. To this day, it still bothers me. That practice what you preach in the code of ethics, I think, is uh, is a pattern of conversation that we're hearing in a lot of different pockets of social work right now. Um, and and I'm I'm hopeful that it's being heard. Um, you talked about anti-blackness, and Deshana earlier uh, talked about critical race theory. Um, just kind of to piggyback off of that, uh, I think we are all in agreement that the black experience is diverse, and uh, and a commitment to anti-racism racism includes a commitment to the needs of disabled folks, LGBTQ folks, um, and all historically oppressed communities like we understand intersectionality um so in your experience how did you feel like or did you experience your or did you feel like your social work education your social work institutions limited the black experience um i don't really remember i i, I went to school a little bit you know <laughs> a little bit ago not too long ago um but we never talked about intersectionality and when we talked about issues um, of other marginalized communities, we talked about them separate from blackness. And so I just want to hear a little bit from you guys about that, because I think we all, I'm, uh, most most black folks can can understand various communities and how we fall in. So Deshaunna, you want to? Yeah. Um, so that's another uh, framework that we didn't talk about <laughs> um, until I got to my PhD program. Um so I I think that I think that in my experience, people are attuned to the fact that I am black, 
Um, but they don't think about the additional burden that I carry as a black woman. And so I think, especially with um, other social workers who identify as female, um, there are some slights <laughs> that occur that when called out on it, people will say, well, no, there's no way that I did that. Um, or there's no way I could have meant it like that. Um, you're a woman and I'm a woman too. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm a black woman <laughs> and you are not <laughs> a black woman. And so me and other students that I've attended school with um, that are Black people that is that identify as female always talk about like the extra burden that we feel like we carry that is kind of not addressed. Um, and to touch to kind of touch back on our gatekeeping conversation, um, I really feel like in our P like in PhD programs in <laughs> um, that academic scholarly setting, um, gatekeeping is a huge problem. Number one, we have a lot of social work faculty that are not social workers. And so that leads to some issues, um, which is not a problem. Uh, social work is interdisciplinary um, and plays well with a lot of different fields. But when you bring faculty into social schools of social work, you want to make sure that they really internalize and live and breathe our code of ethics. And that does not always happen. And as a, as a social work student, you always have to question, well, is it because they're not a social worker? Do they just not understand <laughs> because they are not a social worker because they don't have an MSW? Like what, what is it? <laughs> is it that? Um, and so some of the ways, but on the other hand, so that's one issue. And then on the other hand, academia itself Social work is not immune from the problems associated with academia. So just because it's social work, a PhD program in social work is not immune from being white supremacist. It's not immune from being heteronormative. It's not immune from being um, cisgender centrist. <laughs> um, and speaking specifically about white supremacy, this is definitely a problem for Black first-generation students who really have never had anyone kind of who don't have anyone to tell them about like how this works, how academia works, what you should and should not say, <laughs> who you should and should not say it to. <laughs> and instead of providing you with resources or good faith support and advisement, people will hold things against you. Um, and so you always have to be concerned about oh, did I say something that offends someone? Because some people are not going to tell me. They're going to turn around and talk about it to another faculty member or someone else. And this may come back to harm me because I'm being my genuine, authentic self as someone who is Black or as someone um, who is non-white. <laughs> and it's being misinterpreted as being rude or ratchet or angry, or unprofessional. Um, and so I think that it's interesting. I just wrote a paper about this. <laughs> um, it's that 
there needs to be a change in terms of being explicit in our curriculum, um, both at the BSW, MSW, and doctoral levels about being explicitly anti-white supremacist, explicitly focused on racial justice, and to be explicit in the support of Black students, to touch on Vivian's point earlier about finances, to be specific about making sure that Black people have access through money, educational reparations, um, and things of that nature, and things of that nature to make sure that people of color are able to access social work education because... Like I said, people want to believe that they're going out into white communities to do therapy, and that's not who you're going out there to see. So it would be not to say that you have to look like your community to help them, but sometimes that's what gets your foot in the door. Um, But we have a lot of white supremacist gatekeeping at all levels of education. Yeah. Deanna, do you want to jump in real quick and talk about the diversity of Black folks? Yeah. So something that was interesting for me in my, like, last semester, so this past spring, was that I came out to like basically everyone in my life as non-binary except for my social work cohort and my professors because I knew how that was going to go. Like I spent um, my, I believe my first semester in my social work program listening to a professor misgender the person sitting next to me who used they, them pronouns for that entire semester. And no one checked her. I mean, I tried to bring it up, but she just would laugh it off and like It was something that I brought up as, you know, there's a lot of ways that professors can, you know, get students in trouble, so to speak, but there isn't really a way for us to express our grievances and our concerns. And on top of, and that was our, um, our HBSC class. So on top of that, just being like how she was teaching the way that we were taught those different like theories is we understood, you know, intersectionality exists, systems theory exists, but we didn't really understand like the power behind those, like behind those theories. And also they weren't really applied correctly. So it was just a lot of, we, we have a baseline understanding of like, yes, like we, so we like understand like black issues and all of these things. But at the end of the day, there's no real like understanding of like power dynamics of the power behind those theories that we're talking about and like how we're both impacting like the other people in my cohort, as well as the people that we're going to go into the community and work with and for. Ooh, you just gave me some, some new thoughts. I'm, I'm making new connections and thinking about things differently. When you just talked about they were, that the theories weren't used correctly, and Deshauna early t- earlier talked about having to do her own research. As I think about this, I recognize I do that. That That's kind of what we learn when we grow up. Our parents give us that Black education separate from the school system because the school system's not going to give it to us. And so we learn to get us some extra education on the side. Does anybody, um, Andre or Vivian, y'all want to jump in about the type the ways that you might have studied outside of class to actually learn about your people, your community, and how to serve them? I know uh, arts is one of the biggest, you know, things that I feel like the Black community, you know, represents. Like, we're very creative and innovative as a people. And um, attending the National Association of Black Social Workers Conference last April. Hey, NSBSW in the house. So um, one of the workshops I attended was the Triggered Project, where I saw a one-man monologue by Keith Mascow based out of Boston, Massachusetts, monologue on, you know, child sex abuse in Black males. It was the first time I ever seen anything like that. And I was just in love. And I was like, a fangirl after, you know, the monologue, like, I need to know the theory and da-da-da-da-da. 
And so he gave it to me, like shared the emails. And so did other, you know, black practitioners that were present. Um, I went back to school, you know, and created my own monologue about black motherhood and how like black women are robbed of the joy of black motherhood, you know, of motherhood just because of blackness due to like police brutality, you know, names and the list goes on. And um, my professor was like, well, what do you want to do with this? I'm like, well, I would like for you guys to join in and we could teach it and blah, blah, blah. Every time I go to them with a new framework, a new theory, it just never goes anywhere. It took me to get the support of my black professor, thankfully, who created a space in our black social work class to uh, do our philosophy statements in any form that we wanted to. So I performed the monologue in class. Fortunately, she allowed uh, me the opportunity to present at the student symposium and again, um, at our Afrofuturism project that Black students put together. I will highlight that we do have a New Leaders of African-American Social Work Special Scholars Program, but it was more so focused on those who were in that program that could take that class and you'll have to fight for a spot that's left over, um, which is unfair because if education is supposed to be valuable, then everyone should have access to those courses um, because we're continuing to push unprepared, you know, social workers in the field when it comes to um, the critical race theories and the lives and experiences of black and brown communities. Consistently, I will find that NSBSW, BSWs, we call the student chapters, was the space that was created for students to be able to teach, you know, our peers and our white professors, faculty, staff. We will organize, promote, and market. Um, events that centered, you know, the contributions that Black social workers have made to the field, as well as highlight some of the inequalities and discrimination that we experience as Black practitioners. So the, what that looked like was an event that myself and my BSW colleagues organized called Liberation at Work. We celebrated Juneteenth before it was popular, y'all. We celebrated it at the school, and we also use the second half of the event to um, highlight how we're still fighting to be ourselves at work um, in the aspect of like my hair or the way we dress. Do we participate in Casual Friday? As well as highlighting some things that we don't know, such as what is a CV? How do you use a CV? How to negotiate pay? Um, we also highlighted networking and access because a lot of us do get these degrees as black and brown people, but we fail to recognize that we need to be a part of a network and know how to use that network. So the response to that event was really overwhelmingly um, positive based off the email responses that I got, social media comments. I was just like so happy. The same things also happened with Beyond Black and White Social Work that my colleague Bunchy Shakur as well as flow and student organization called Black Radical Healing Pathways. They organized this, you know, workshop series where they highlighted, you know, beyond black and white social work, um, where they talked about the history, once again, of black social workers, what we contribute to the field, as well as challenging people, um, mainly, you know, white organizations to um, be, you know, more, I could say, more of an ally and advocating for the needs of not just black clients that we serve, but also for the needs of the black practitioners that they hire, like hire us in leadership, 
pay us fair, especially black women, please pay us a fair wage. Okay. And I just feel like it would be more beneficial if more educational programs, you know, centering around social work would take that type of, you know, lead. So much of our, you know, education about black and brown practitioners in the field of social work came from outside of the classroom. It was coming from black students in their student groups, not from the courses, of course. And um, the work was very invaluable. And yet, you know, sometimes it went heavily unsupported, whether it was financially or through attendance. And then when it was attended, you know, it was like, well, we want to have a one-on-one with you guys to did it. I'm like, well, where's my money? Sorry, I need to get paid. I want to be exploited. <laughs> that was some of the experience. Um, but to note on some of the things that Deshauna said um, that resonated with me and her points earlier before I, you know, wrap it up is I really wish we had more of the focus on diversity of blackness. When I think about hood feminism books, you know, by Mickey Kendall recently or Brittany Cooper's Beyond Respectability, it just burns me up that when I look at social work education or any education that's educating on race, it's always cut in black and white. You have black elitists. All right. We have anti-blackness within our own group. We have colorism, which for me is a big issue because as a dark skinned black woman, I scare people when I'm not trying to. If I look like a rest and be face, people think I'm mad, intimidating. They don't want to talk to me, you know, and it could be even subtle with my white friend groups of, well, I was like, oh, I used to be a substitute teacher. Ooh, you probably scared all the kids. If you was my sub, I would have been scared. I'm like, well, what would make you say that? Vivian means vivacious and bubbling with life, people. It is not, <laughs> that's the meaning of my name. Like, I ain't here to hurt nobody. And seeing how I don't have any control over that, it, it really bothers me. Then you think about poor students. You have the privileged poor that was written about, you know, and I just feel like we don't create spaces to even explore all of this. And it's an issue because when you think about who gets opportunities in the Black community, you're looking at Black men. You can just look at Black men depending on the organization. You're looking at light-skinned Black people, right? And then I look at those who are darker hues, particularly vocal Black women who are really not at the table. And when they already have to really buy into this respectable Black person that white people feel comfortable with, right? And so I just would like to see more of that implemented in our social work education um, of, you know, well, why isn't that Black person at the table? There is some great research out there from social workers on colorism. And, and you're right. That's an area of, of understanding Blackness and understanding diversity that we don't even touch on in our coursework. We don't get to get there. Andre, you wanted to jump in on this? It, um, it's so much to say. Um, I guess your initial question was, you know, kind of parse out more about the intersectionality about being Black. Yeah. Um, so I am black and I am actually disabled, um, but I live with an invisible disability. So people don't, you know, consider that. Um, and, uh, even though I went to a historically black college, I still felt like I was an outsider because I was a male, um, in the social work space, um, I could count on my on less than one hand how many guys were in any uh, social work class. Now I will say that I was very um, impressed to see that we had several social work faculty members um, that were black men, um, but 
when I say several, I will say one, two, several equals like four. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of them uh, ended up transitioning to teach in graduate, um, the, the graduate program. So I didn't get to see all of them. So I'll say that to say, I know it may sound privileged, but um, in this case, in social work, it is, you are very much a minority as a male. Um, And I think it's very important to, one of the reasons, and this is not a plug, I promise, but- No, I was going to plug it myself. It it just, it flows out. But um, I really appreciate, um, I really don't want to sound self-serving, but I really appreciate my group that I started, Black Men in Social Work. And it this is, is worth why. celebrating. Highlight it. Talk about Thank yourself. You. You but this is why, um, as of today, I th- we have over, I think, 1,200 members in our Facebook group. And of course, we have a, a Instagram and a, a Twitter page. But with that group, I've been able to see that I'm not the only one <laughs> that uh, has these issues. And so I say this also to say Black men in social work, uh, I created it uh, with me and like two other people three years ago. Um, And it's just now in the last year or so getting momentum. But I created it only because I wanted students to see whether they were in elementary, middle, high school, or even in college, that you don't have to be the Black guy who's on the football field to get out out of the community, or you don't have to be the one that's dribbling basketball. Now, if you do that, that's fine. Um, but that doesn't have to be the only thing uh, you're you're known for. Like that doesn't have to be your career. Um, and I'm not. Again, I don't want anyone to think that I'm bashing people for wanting to be athletic or bank on their athleticism. But when I when I tell like younger guys that I'm a social work major and I explain. First of all, I have to get them over the hurdle that I'm not in CPS and I don't take nobody's kids. Um, so that's just for social work, period. That's something I think we all have to, if we don't work in child protection, I think we all have to, hey, I don't, I'm not doing that. That's not what I, I don't do that. Every social worker doesn't do that. But then I also have to dispel the myth that social worker, um, social work is basically a white female profession. That's what, when people think of a social worker, they think of a white woman. Um, and so I have to really convince men it's okay to be a man and be a social worker. And first of all, if you want to work in CPS, you can. I actually worked in CPS before I got my social work degree, which is weird, but I was in, I, I did other stuff, but you could uh, do policy. You could do macro. You could do therapy. There's so many things you could do. You could be a medical social worker. You could be a political social worker. Being able to show uh, black men that this is something that you can do. Um, and so I also wanted to say with that, though, um, kind of going back, but tying it to what we're talking about, is I had, I seem to have had a lot more pushback at my HBCU about why I created uh, a group called Black Men in Social Work than I did anywhere else. Um, and I was very confused about that. So I used to have classmates who were Black um, when I was trying to, hey, you know, and they were other Black men, I want you to join the group. You know, I want you to add, you know, your voice, blah, blah, blah. I think it would be great. Um, and then I literally had one guy 
kind of go toe-to-toe with me and say the I'm referencing this older Hispanic guy I told you about earlier. He was in the class and he said, well, what about my friend so-and-so? Um, you're saying he can't join and you're being racist and you're you're not allowing him to have, you know, and he went on this whole bit about me excluding and blah, blah, blah. And then there was one white kid in our program and he brought him into it. That's the whole thing. And so my, my, my thing about this is I, I think it's very important to normalize being black and normalize that it's okay being black and normalize that it's okay to have an affinity group where other people who don't meet the requirements can't join. It, it's not racist to have a group that says we're black men in social work. Um, if we had um, opportunities available to us, first of all, we wouldn't have to have an HBCU. Um, second of all, I'm sure that uh, if the opportunities for black men or black people were available to be in social work, were there when social work really had its its start, we wouldn't really have a need to have black men in social work. So now that we have a need to have it, don't make me feel bad because I'm offering safe space for somebody to 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 enjoy or to to access. And so my my group it's not really just oh we, we don't want black people in our group. My group is really about black we have professors, we have students, we have faculty, we have researchers. I have so many men uh posting my group um who are looking for scholarships and they get scholarships. They're looking for fellowships and they end up getting fellowships. They end up uh, applying to a program because a professor posts about a program. They get an assistantship. They are getting access to resources they probably may not have had access to before. So I really had to mention that because I think it's imperative that we um, normalize the intersectionalities that we all have. And then I mentioned being disabled because um one of the things that I had to uh, think about with my professor is, again, it's to me, it's sad when you have to remind your professors about the code of ethics. I, I kept telling them, you there, there's no way you can be a social work professor and not be cognizant of the fact that there are some people who live with disabilities that just because I don't sit in a wheelchair or just because I don't um, drag my foot or just because I don't slur my speech, that doesn't mean... I don't have a disability. So I had to really fight for the first maybe two semesters I was in my program to get appropriate resources to be able to successfully finish my program. Um, And so I think social work needs to be mindful that people with disabilities um, may be in their programs. And even those that they serve may have invisible disabilities and they need to be sensitive to those things. Um, because our code tells us we have to um, inherently uh, respect the dignity and self-worth of all people. I mean, if they're disabled, you have to really respect that. Thank you so much. Um, you're, you, one, I just want to take a moment in the middle, uh, a little uh, shout out and appreciation to so many Black faculty um, at universities across the country who really support and help. I'm hearing about projects. I'm hearing about the ways that they're helping you um, 
support like your education with scholarships. I had a graduate assistantship because there happened to have been a black faculty person um, at my school who who allowed me to fill that space um, or I'd be in a lot more student loan debt. So um, just like such an appreciation for those folks who really help us get through the program. And we, we would not, many of us would not be successful without their uh, support. Um, Deshana. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about diversity and intersectionality. And so just because Andre uh, was the last to speak, I want to make sure I want to pick up there um, because he made me think about something like, yeah, I talked about the intersection of me being a black woman. Uh, and I don't know how I forgot about this. <laughs> uh, well, maybe because I'm doing a good job of handling it. But I also was diagnosed with several mental illnesses <laughs> um, during my first year of my doctorate program. Um, and that has been interesting. Uh, it has been, number one, I'm a Black person who does mental health research and therefore knows the stigma attached to the fact that I have these mental illnesses and have to ask for accommodations for them. <laughs> um, and, under, and having to understand that because it's an invisible disability that um, people may be like, oh, well, why do I have to give you this extension? Like, why can't you just like feel better? <laughs> um, or what does it really mean for you to be telling me that you're in a depressive episode? Um, and comparing me to other Black people in my program who may or may not, or who who have not um, openly and admit it feels weird <laughs> um, to having any type of disability. So it's like, you're saying, well, this black person is doing this and this and this has done this and this and this has this many publications, has this much funding and you over here struggling. What's, what's going on? Um, ma'am, I have depression, anxiety, and PTSD. I'm really trying. <laughs> um, and then on the other hand, that kind of folds into um, talking about diversity is that I've realized that social work education really benefits from thinking that like, or having a typical or ideal type of Black person. Um, there have been several occasions where I've been told to just chill um, or just to fly under the radar, like just keep your head down. I don't want to keep my head down. I want to be me. <laughs> I don't want to feel as if I have to make myself smaller. And that's why, especially recently with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, I just got fed up with social work education. I said, you guys are telling me keep my head down and, and just chill, just be quiet, just get through my programs and all that jazz. Um, but you're really not here for me. And that's why, like, every that's why when the situation with George Floyd happened, like, I just got really fed up and started to go public and say, listen, I see that social work programs are not speaking out. I see you not talking, you not talking, you not talking, you not talking. <laughs> and you want my dues later this year, and I'm not gonna give them to you. And in two years when I'm on the job market, I see you ain't put out no statement. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's where I want to go. And 
there are people who are like, well, you know, Deshaunie, you might want to tamper that down um, because you don't want it to negatively impact you. Again, if you could not just put out a statement, like I didn't even say you had to do anything. If all, if you couldn't even just put out a quick tweet that said that we are Black Lives Matter, I don't want to work for you. <laughs> I'm like that's that's it. Instead of worrying, about, instead of trying to quiet me down and make me fit into the mold of your ideal black person, how about you get yourself together <laughs> um, and really show that you. Um, hold true to our code of ethics and stand true to what we are, what we say we're about, that you uphold um, social justice because um, everybody has that in their mission statements these days. <laughs> um, so make sure that you're really out here seeking social justice and seeking racial justice um, and that you're about what you say you're about. Um, instead of trying to get all Black students and Black faculty members um, and Black staff members to react the same way and not cause trouble and not cause drama um, and not be too angry um, and not ask for too much by asking you to rethink about your curriculum and your syllabi um, and to just, like, not be quiet. Like, I don't want to be quiet. I want to be me. There, there, not to say that there's anything wrong with being quiet, but I just want to be able to be who I am as a social worker um, and have that autonomy that we espouse <laughs> uh, and not be punished for it via gatekeeping. <laughs> um, so if we could just do that and accept the diversity that is present in our experiences and the ways in which we react and the ways in which we engage in activism um, and the ways in which we engage in social work, uh, that would just be great for Black students and non-white students. Absolutely. Code switching. We don't always want to. It's not always something we should have to do. Um so that re that that brought to my mind, and I should, probably should have asked this at the beginning. But um, what? Why did you choose social work? What made you want to come to social work? And then even were there elements or pieces to the schools that you chose to attend? You don't have to say the school. You can be as vague as you um, want to want to be. <laughs> um, but were there elements um, that were you looking for blackness? in choosing the schools of social work that you chose to attend? Um, and like, just how was your search in looking for blackness as you came to realize you wanted to be a social worker? Vivian. Um, to be honest, I was one of those students that didn't do my homework. Um, I can admit that. I would say what maybe choose social work is that I was working as a case manager at the time and I was getting a lot of job offers without looking to be either a wraparound specialist or the program coordinator. But unfortunately, those positions required a social work degree and it kept coming up. Like in a short amount of, short amount of time, I was being told like, hey, you should look into this school of social work and this one. And I just loved my mentor so much from undergrad that, you know, he told me I either could go to U of M or I could go to what's the other school? It's far away. Just know that it's far away. He gave me two choices. And so I was like, well, I'm from Ohio. You know, that school is three hours away. I could go there, call it a day. And um, I also was attracted to their child welfare program because I wanted to 
work in child welfare, being a product of the child welfare system specifically, and then seeing a lot of the gaps, you know, from the ecological standpoint. So I wanted to be like in a policy arena, um, as well as the program arena and designing programs that were more um, youth centered, specifically for those who were like in the foster care portion. And so like I applied to the scholarship program, got denied. Oh, it happens. I Going back to that whole gatekeeping stuff. Um, but I stuck with it anyway, because I'm like, well, I'm already here per se. And there are some good life lessons and friends that came out of my program. Um, truthfully, I didn't want to be a social worker only because I had a negative experience and it was hard for me to identify with social workers as somebody that is raised in the system. But for the work that I wanted to do and that I was good at doing, I knew that social work was the only degree I, you know, at least I was told that the social work degree was the one I needed to have. Yeah, thank you. Deanna? Um, so I looked, I got into social work and was interested in majoring in social work because I just kind of looked up like, what can I major in to help people? And it was just this very vague like idea of wanting to help people. And while I like I love the idea of social work and I love the idea of like the social work education, I definitely went into like starting college with the idea that I wanted to do macro social work and I wanted to talk about systems, tackle like, you know, creating racial justice and economic justice. And as I got into the program and actually started like being in the classroom, it was clear that that's not what my cohort really was interested in. And that's not what my professors were interested in teaching. So I was, I had already started off pretty like progressive, but like as I continued in college and got involved in like student organizations and student government and campus organizing, I was more and more passionate about like, you know, the big picture solutions to these problems and like, you know, systemic solutions and systemic change. And I feel like while I enjoyed parts of my social work education, that was never touched on. It was like, okay, it's cool that you want to do that. And it's like, that was never like fostered or mentored. And I think part of it was that I was like very much perceived as like the stereotype of um, like, put together black girl who like does all of their homework ahead of time and like doesn't need like support because they can do the research themselves when that wasn't necessarily where I was. And so those stereotypes and a lot of like just not caring about the advocacy I was doing led to me being like, I still like love the idea of social work, especially radical social work, but I'm very hesitant about going back and getting my master's because the like, like, the research on social work that I did and like what I thought that the jobs available and profession was, especially like the past two months um, and like throughout my program have really shown me that that's not necessarily meshing. So I'm coming to terms with the fact that social work isn't as a profession in the United States right now, isn't where I want it to be. And then deciding like, does that mean you stick with it and stay and get another degree and eventually teach, which is what I used to want to do? or just like ditch it and go do public policy. Um, so I think that's, I've noticed a lot of people who are really interested in like policy and like justice oriented in social work are very like realizing that the way that the profession is advertised isn't necessarily what you'll get once you start in the education and get into practitioner work. I hear you. And I, I will say that for me, that's an area that, um, I feel saddened by. I often see students go to policy work um, in, in other areas of study, which are valuable um, areas of study, but I see a passion for social work, um, social justice, um, 
but I think that, you know, that what we call macro too often looks like nonprofit management and not, um, not systemic change, not, um, um, I would say polite advocacy, not the messy stuff, um, not the grassroots stuff. Deshana, you want to talk about even your research and why you came to social work and what you're doing? Oh, babe. <laughs> um, so my path to social work is interesting. Um, I was a clinical psych, I was a psych undergrad who was planning to go into a clinical psych program. Um, I got a summer fellowship the summer before my senior year. Um, and the chair of the department in a summer lecture said, if you want to help people, um, if you say you want to help people on your clinical psych PhD applications, you're not going to get in. And I was like, but I do, I do want to help people. <laughs> I like this. That's why I do this. <laughs> that's why I'm doing it, all of this. Um, and so one day my research mentor in undergrad um, called me into her office and said, you know, Deshauna, your questions about mental health disparities and why um, some kids get treatment and some kids don't get treatment. Like they're not really like clinical psych. They're more social worky. And I realize now that that conversation was tinged with racism, <laughs> but it's cool. Because <laughs> um, I ended up where I was supposed to be. Because um, there are plenty of clinical psychologists. Well, there are some that study mental health disparities. So it wasn't a complete like, oh my God, you were in a completely wrong field. But that's not that's neither here nor there. Um, so that's how I ended up in social work. I was again as a first gen. Um, I didn't have anybody to tell me, no, Deshauna, don't do that. So when people would say like, oh, Deshauna, do that, I just do it. <laughs> and so she was like, yeah, that question, those questions that you have about why Black kids are less likely to get treatment um, is social work. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to be a clinical psychologist anymore. I guess I'm going to be a social worker. And so I just jumped all of that, even though I had like extensive research experience, was really training my myself to be ready for a PhD program in clinical psych. Um, I just said, oh, well, bump that social work it is. And so again, being a first, and it's funny, I was just talking to my parents about that today or yesterday, um, about how my approach to my social work education has been, oh, you got in? Go. <laughs> And so it wasn't, oh, it was black faculty or, oh, it was like, oh, I got into a school. I can go anywhere I want to go. Bam, just go. <laughs> um, not thinking it through. And now I talk to my parents. I'm like, why y'all let me just go to these places? Y'all, why did y'all do that? Because <laughs> I ended up in these really white places. And I'm like, y'all just didn't even say nothing. Y'all just was like, bye, Deshada. Bye. <laughs> Literally dropping me off, moving me in and saying bye. Y'all knew y'all knew y'all set me up. But that's what happens when you first year. Your parents just they so proud of you. <laughs> and they just like, it's gonna be okay. And then when you call it and be like, these people is racist, they like, girl, just just do you do it. You can do it. <laughs> Cause they, they don't know what you're going through. <laughs> um and so like that's kind of how. I have approached my education is just, uh, especially now, uh, what I realized is 
I've gone to top programs and like that was the only factor. Like, oh, that's a good school. You don't you don't know nothing. The current city I live in, I knew nothing about it. I was like, oh, I got in and they got money. They paid me. So let's go. <laughs> um, and now, um, now I know I was just talking to my mama about this yesterday. Now I want to be more intentional about where I end up next. Um, that's why I'm not afraid of any blowback from anything I post on Twitter, because if you cannot support me as a black woman in social work academia who just wants the best for black kids and Latinx kids, because um, I'm originally from Miami, Florida. <laughs> um, so I feel a certain community with La- with the Latinx community. Um, so if you can't support me, you can't validate me, you can't uplift me, um, or you don't have space to support me and just let me spread my wings as a Black female academic, then I don't really want to be on your faculty. Um, I want, even if I'm the only one on your faculty, which I would hope not, uh, especially since I'm giving y'all forewarning now, I'm be on the market two years. If y'all can get some people to be with me, that'd be great. (laughs) Um, but I, I have some really amazing mentors. Shout out to Dr. Campbell. Um, I want to be more intentional because I want support. I don't want to be miserable. I don't want to be constantly upset because people are saying racist things to me. I don't want to be constantly upset because people are doing microaggressions that aren't really micro. Um, I don't want to have to, I, I stay in trouble often. And it was the same at both of my institutions. I stay in trouble often because I, I can't keep my mouth shut about injustices. I can't keep my mouth shut about racial slights. Um, I'm from the hood in Miami. So I'm like, I don't, I don't tolerate disrespect. <laughs> this, this is not, this is not happening. Um, and so I just don't want to be in an environment as I move forward because it's not good. Number one, it's not good for my, like for my future career trajectory is going to stunt my work. Um, and number two, it's just not good for me personally. It's not good for my mental health. Um, and as someone, as a mental health researcher, I'm really mindful of that. Like, that's one thing that COVID has put into perspective as like, we don't talk enough about, um, we don't talk enough about mental health. So like, we don't talk enough about what minor things can impact mental health, the impacts of racism on mental health, um, the impacts of oppression on mental health, especially for our youth. Um, And those are the things that I want to do now. Like, adults are adults. And there are people out there who do the work for adults. Um, But I'm really about making sure that black and brown kids have the tools they need to be successful and to be happy and as as mentally healthy as possible um, before they become adults. And like, I just, that, yeah, that's kind of my thing now. So I got into social work through some racism. (laughs) And now I make sure that I nip that in the bud. And I want to make sure that Black kids, especially those in the inner city who experience, who some will say experience the impacts of racism the hardest in their communities, um, are not left out in the cold to develop anxiety and depression and not get it diagnosed and not get it treated. Yes. Andre? So what brought me to social work um, is it wasn't anything... (sighs) 
I, I wasn't the cliche, I want to help people. And so I majored in social work, no shade to anyone, because, you know, some of my uh, participants here have said that, which is a, a wonderful thing. Uh, we were frowned upon in my program. We could not say, if we said we wanted to help people, like, they would look at us. They made us say more than that. I think Deshauna kind of mentioned, you know, that. Um, so... I mentioned earlier that I have an invisible disability. So I live with sickle cell disease um, and I am actually am a sickle cell disease survivor and a stroke survivor. Um, so a lot of people don't understand that uh, I'm disabled because the, I don't carry myself as disabled, but um, I do have um, some residual effects from the stroke. Um, so it, with that, um, I have been very active in the uh, advocacy space as a sickle cell advocate. And so very quickly, I'm going to share just a little bit of my story. So when I was first in undergrad in 2007, after I graduated high school, um, my major was mass communications. I absolutely hated it. Um, I went to college and for some reason, I allowed my parents to peer pressure me into picking a major. And they always told me growing up, I had the gift of gab. So they thought I should be a mass communications major so I could be a news reporter or the next black male Oprah. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. I, I just did whatever they told me to do. So I, 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 I majored in mass communications. I hated it. Um, and so I ended up getting very sick in school, um, ended up in ICU um, for like almost a month. Um, and when I came out um, and I tried to return back to school, uh, my school was like, no, nah, bro, <laughs> I'm sorry, but like you've been gone like way too long. And so and that was also around the time of the housing crisis of 2008. Um and just, you know, the financial decline. And so my parents were like, we can't afford to keep you here because it was a private college, EWI private college. So I ended up walking away from school and I stayed out of school for like five or six years. Um, and within that time, I was, in, in order to do something with my time since I was in, uh, in school, I started working and then I would get sick again and I couldn't work. So I would be at home. And so I started volunteering at my local sickle cell organization a little bit more. Um, and so now that I had no job, I didn't have no school to go to, I was able to go to sickle cell conferences. And so I would just go to conferences and meetings and and everything. I went to everything um, just to participate. But then after a while, like Shauna said, when things were problematic for me, I started to speak up. And so um, I kind of just stepped into the position of an advocate. And so I started uh, consulting with pharmaceutical companies. I ended up getting three or four certifications um, and licenses that uh, uh, really enforced my education as an advocate in the political space. Um, and then I started working with uh, my state government and the federal government about policy, uh, healthcare policy, and especially with sickle cell disease. And so that's how I kind of started getting interested in macro social work, but I didn't know what it was. And so when I finally went back to school, I was trying to decide a major and I knew it wasn't going to be mass communications. And I took um, like one of those career tests at the 
career center. And then I actually had thoughts of doing sociology, but someone told me, you are a macro social worker. You've been doing this. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And I applied to my program and I got in and the rest is history. Um, and then specifically what brought me, if I was looking for blackness in the program, I guess it kind of answers itself because I went to a HBCU. So um, there's, of course, an inherent level of blackness you're going to get in an HBCU that you're not going to get anywhere else. And I appreciate that lens because I learned a lot of things as a black person that my counterparts who did not go to HBCUs didn't learn or it just didn't get that experience. As a student at a PWI, I was at a PWI for two years. I hated it. Um, the, the social life was amazing. We clubbed and partied all the time. That was fun, but I didn't learn anything. I was not academically um, enriched. I wasn't just nothing. My, my academics were trash. The professors were trash. Everything was trash. Um, and again, going back to that peer pressure thing, in this city, the school that I went to, everybody thinks it's like the cream of the crop only because it's a Christian PWI private school. And I'm a living witness to show that going to a public state HBCU um, is just as beneficial because I learned way much more um, at my public state school that was an HBCU here in this city um, than I ever did at the private Christian uh, PWI that I went to. Um, and then also I was a McNair scholar. So there were a lot of opportunities that were available to me um, that were not available to me at the PWI. So when I was looking for schools, I, I really was looking for how many opportunities I would be um, afforded. And every one of them was afforded to me while I was at my HBC. I was able to travel abroad twice. I interned in DC and Florida. I was able to do a lot of things that I didn't even fathom I could do at the PWI. Okay. So just a couple more things before we wrap up. Everyone knows, I think we've all had that experience in that one diversity course. If you had more than one, celebrate your institution. But most of us have um, one diversity course. Um, could you tell, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but um, what your experience was like having the one diversity course, being a student in that space. Tell me um, just a little bit about like your experience with that, Vivian. Uh, for me, I lucked up with the professor that I got for my diversity course. Um, to be honest, I didn't want to take it because my undergraduate degree is in nonprofit administration. So I had a lot of diversity classes already, but it's mandatory. And um, the professor, once again, I lucked up with because I was already investigating who I was going to take. You know, I'm not with the professors that be with the BS. So <laughs> I do my research of who not to take. The one time I didn't, it kicked me in my behind. So anywho, that professor was really great because the content was really diverse. In fact, I actually learned something. Like I learned more about the Jewish population than I've ever learned. I learned a lot about different critical race theories, about the Kahambi Collective, you know, just so many things that I never knew of before, which allowed me to expand my knowledge base about the indigenous, you know, anti-racism, ethnic cleansing, the likes. Um, and I also appreciated the different tools that she used 
to teach. Like we listened to podcasts, we saw YouTube videos. Um, we did all types of things, which made me know that she was very diverse and she accommodated different students' learning styles. The downside of the class that she had no control over is, of course, my white peers. Um, in diversity classes, they want us to talk about diversity and challenge ourselves and perspectives. It's not going to happen with white women. You know, it's I often observe them being afraid to say anything. And they'll even say they're afraid to say things because they're worried about by POC students attacking them for what they say or offending someone. Um, but like you guys already do <laughs> anyway, I mean, just keeping it real. And as far as starting stuff goes, yes, I was the stuff starter, you know, trying to use clean language today. And I would just say some things, you know, to try to get them to talk because that's just how I am. I am a talker and I don't want to come to this class and be the only one providing education. I'm asking white women. So what do you think about that? Or why do you think that way? You know, and they, you know, sometimes it ended up good. Sometimes it didn't. Um, but as far as my peers experience in that diversity class, it was horrible because going back to a lot of white instructors, not feeling comfortable with teaching content that centers black and brown bodies, um, not having a diverse syllabus. And it's also the issue of I'm observing some schools such as mine will hire new, you know, professors. I want to say assistant professors. I may be wrong in saying that, but they're mandated to teach this, you know, entry level course in order to teach the other classes. Right. So a lot of them are teaching content. They're not even well briefed on, you know, to students. Right. And I think that's one of the bigger problems. Um, and so people typically walked out of that class they actually built a curriculum committee to try to restructure the class and make it uniform. And of course, it's still not working. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I don't know if that's a class for bi PLC students all the time because the bi PLC student body there is so small that it's actually violent for us to sit in those spaces with our you know white peers. But I love Professor Louise. Does anybody else want to share their experience with that diversity course? Yeah, Deanna. Um, so at my university, our diversity course was online. And I think there was only one person in my entire cohort who took it in person. And that's because she was taking her classes out of order. Uh, but it was, I think most people just like cheated the entire class because it was online. It was based out of like a textbook. And it was very, you know, just like read the little module on Canvas and then, you know, keep it pushing. It wasn't anything that actually engaged us. And so then like, to me, I had to balance between like, okay, I have a bunch of other stuff that I need to spend time on. And like, okay, is anyone else actually going to put effort into these like online discussion questions? And so I was like spending all of this time, like typing these like long answers and like responding to people. And people were just like, I've never thought about people having disabilities before. And just like no effort being put in. And it just like reflects on like how, I think a lot of like social work programs aren't putting effort into like even teaching the basics of diversity. And then we're asking them to like make decisions about like racial justice and racial equity. And it's like these like professors are making conscious decisions to not require more of these classes. I think the final project for our diversity class, because it was online was like 
you could either do volunteer hours, do volunteer hours and play like an online simulator that was like about like life and like the differences between like people or um, make like the equivalent of a Wikipedia page about like a different like group of people than yourself. And so because I was like, I cared about it and I wanted to do it, I ended up doing that Wikipedia page but there weren't enough people in my cohort to even, it was supposed to be a group project. If you did the Wikipedia page, there weren't enough people who were willing to put in the effort for me to do it as a group. So I did it by myself because I wanted to learn more. And I like focused on a different country and like learning about like the like diversity there and like the impacts on like religion and ethnicity there. But it was just like, how are we going to expect, like, I was like, if we're not asking like my cohort and my peers to do more, we're not, gonna get it like if everyone is so busy and you're asking us put in the bare minimum of like read about racism like two paragraphs and watch a video and then google the answer it's like they're not even going to read the paragraphs and watch the video and so it was just like a very bare minimum effort into talking about diversity which I think is very reflective of an incident in my cohort where um the I think it was like the dean of our um program was saying something and I was like do you not realize that like you have more power in the situation and she was like oh well like as a white lesbian and I was like you have a salary and half the people in this room have student loan debt so it was just very interesting that it's like okay there was like we understand like identity and representation but not necessarily what diversity actually is and like the power that comes behind that and I think it's just like the fact that we had that online class and then like that happened and it wasn't like one-to-one, it was in front of my entire cohort. It was just very reflective of like what that actually meant to them. And I don't think that was just my university. I think that's something a lot of people can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I keep going with the same thing, but I wanted to ask you guys, has anyone had any focus or can anyone re- remember a time in their classwork um, where you've learned about or talked about whiteness explicitly? No. <laughs> no. Um, so- Stand out of you and sink. It's a resounding hell no. <laughs> no. So we talk about everybody else, but whiteness is just normal. Other, we just, we just, we no learning about whiteness. Is everybody you don't have about something? You don't have to learn about what's normal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's odd because I'm like, we be having white clients. You know, I ain't, I am not prepared to have a white client. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> But if I can say, uh, Charlotte, I think that's a great point, though, because in order for us to be, you know, uh, and I'm thinking about the question in in my diversity class, uh, the word cultural competence was beating us. You know, the word, you know, the term culturally sensitive was beating us. Um, But are we culturally sensitive or culturally appropriate or culturally, um, uh, are we serving our white? Uh, clients. Uh, but then it goes back to what I said before, though, is the theories and the and the things that were taught is normalized by white people anyway. So if we implement a theory that was written by a white person and tested on white people and, and you know, it has a track record in the white community, if we take it and, and throw it on them, it's going to work. It's going to produce results. So well, what would the produce? That part, because, whitening whiteness within white supremacy and maintaining right. 
supremacy, then right. if you use it exactly as it is, what would it produce? Yes. yes. But then also, if you think of it this way, this is another thing that um, I'm grateful for in my education. So um, we were given, a, I guess, an anecdote to say you can have a theory that was, you know, created by white people for white people. But even you as a black person, you provide a filter. You know, you think of a filter or a water filter or whatever, some whatever filter that catches things. So that theory is going to go through your black filter. Um, and so there's still going to be some type of blackness. There's going to be a, a handprint or, a, you know, some type of fingerprint in that, that theory um, from our own lived and personal experience, um, how we apply it, how we how we conceptualize it, how we digest it. So, I mean, I'm sure that's a whole different thing we could talk about. Andre, um, you got my brain going crazy. Uh, yes. I'm like, if it's filtered through, then how is it assessed? Like if our yes. assessors and our educators yes. are assessing the way yes. that I, as a student learner, take in yes. CBT, but I'm processing it through the filter of my blackness and what of that course. Means. Then of how course. is my professor going to assess my work? You of course pushing me. Thank you. Yes. Love and this. see, I think that I think these are conversations that are very necessary because again, with my lens from a HBCU, these are the conversations that we had. These are the because we had practitioners who were our adjunct professors and they were saying, Well, I had a white client named Billy and blah 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 and this didn't work. Or I had a black client named, you know, Daquan and applying this show wasn't going to work. And, you know, they taught us how, you know, you know, Daquan wasn't about to sit there um, and, you know, lay on a chase for three hours and talk about, you know, like we could go on and on about how CBT is not always the best option for black communities. We could go on and on about a whole bunch of all these other theories that should not be the go-to when we, do therapy with black people, but again, I'm not a, I'm not micro, so child, my, my stomach hurts when I think about that. But going back to what <laughs> you were saying, um, I had one diversity course, one, one or two, um, but I appreciated that course. Again, as someone who lives with disabilities, um, we were taught a lot about the intersectionality of you know, disabilities, of, you know, race, um, of ethnicity, um, and the fact that a lot of people who were non-people of color who didn't even know that there's a difference between race and ethnicity in college, I just, I couldn't wrap my head around that. And to me, I was like, this is, and it was always the white, it's always, so how we are in PWIs, how we're the chocolate chips, the white kids at the HBCUs are the white chocolate chips. <laughs> and there's always a white chocolate chip in the, the HBCU class, always. And so it was funny to see even then how their privilege would still come out. and like, oh, my God, there's a difference between race and ethnicity. Yeah, there is. You know, you get identify as one racial group and then have a whole different ethnicity, vice versa. But anyway. To Shout answer, out to our Black Latinx. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, and so that, that so to me, that class was important because it blew their mind that you could have all of these things uh, commingling to to create your identity. Um, and so I, I really appreciate it. I I love that class because I used to get on people's nerves because I will always be the one, I guess, that would play devil's advocate and always say, well, 
Um, if you have a problem with someone who's getting an abortion and blah, 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 I'll always talk about the controversial intersectionalities that people don't like to talk about. Um, I think that's very important. Um, and so I think that's why I like my diversity course, because it wasn't, we didn't just stick to, oh, black means, you know, this and white means that. It wasn't just about black and white. We talked about culture, religious culture. Um, even within one religion, there's, you know, certain subtexts in culture. Um, you know, food culture, that is a big thing. Some people's, they're, you know, they're, uh, which is influenced by their religion, what they can and cannot eat really influences how they live. You know, uh, the culture, their music, there's just so much that we don't think about when we think about diversity and we always go back to race. And race um, is just one big part of it, but race is not the only part that we should be thinking about when we talk about diversity. I learned so much about um, differently abled people. Um, I even felt bad because even though I was somebody with disabilities, I didn't I didn't know as much as I should have. I learned about the hard of hearing community, about not uh, using the uh, not um, how some people in the community want to use the lowercase d and then some people want to use the, the uppercase d that never came across my mind but because of that class i learned that and why is that because i had a professor who worked at a, a deaf uh college gallaudet university and she because of her uh experience she was able to bring that back to us so i, I think those are some amazing things to say is that diversity courses um should go beyond the racial aspect and really get into the intersectionality of what, what people are. I could be, me and Charla are two black people, but I'm sure we're, even though we're a lot alike, there's a world of difference between us and that has to be understood. Yes, yes. So we have talked for a really long time. Um, it's been great. I just want to wrap it up with a couple of things. Last question, I guess. What do you guys want schools of social work to know? If you were a dean or a director, what do you, um, what changes would you make? How would you change your hiring practices? What would you like to see a part of the curriculum, the funding, the university structure? How would you like to see schools engage differently with the community? I know this is really loaded. How would you like them to address the peers, admissions? Just like some key, really quick ways that you, some takeaways that you want deans, directors, school leaders, social work educators to know? Deshana? Um, I want the most important thing is I want them to be intentionally anti-racist. Um, your, your school environment would be much better for it, um, especially um, at the doctoral level. Things can be toxic just because of the culture of academia um, outside of the culture of social work. Um, you need to be explicitly anti-racist. Um, look for ways to go out of your way and support students of color, support Black students, support first-generation students. Um, just to piggyback on the diversity class, try and not make it a buffet type of style, like, oh, this week we're going to learn about Asian Americans, and this week we're going to learn about this. Like, let's not, let's not do that. <laughs> um, let's be intentional about that course. Let's really call on students to think critically. Let's think about what readings we're assigning. Let's think about um, 
differently abled students and how some students may um, do well with readings, but some students may benefit from multimedia. So videos and even pictures and music videos and like really incorporating and being innovative in the way that which, in which we present information so that all students can benefit. Um, but the like I said, the most important thing is being like intentionally being purposefully anti-racist anti-sexist against white supremacy like intentionally seeking searching for racial justice and social justice Deanna um I thought about this a lot and I think the biggest thing is for a lot of social work programs need to take a hard look at themselves and like go back to the roots of our profession as being like they're like as being radical and like looking at the roots of all of these like social issues that we're like claiming to work on and fix and so part of that is hiring professors that have macro experience, hiring black professors, trans professors, queer professors, disabled professors. And I think a really big one is teaching from a black queer feminist lens and an anti-capitalist lens so that we're actually like getting to the root of these issues that we're talking about. And we're not just running around in the same circles that we've been going around in. Um, and then, you know, like other things like advocating for paid field practicum so that people aren't going into debt. Um, and then another big one for me is focusing on action research so that we're not just studying the communities that a lot of like black and brown students are from and saying, okay, cool. Now you can get a grant to study them and also like, you know, stipends for your housing while also not getting anything back. So like focusing more on if we're social workers and we're going to be doing research and like focusing on these communities and any problems that are there that we're helping them solve those problems and making sure that there's equal benefit from whatever we're doing. Yeah. Um, I would like to go and highlight the field placements as well as mentorship. I think that's something that's really lacking. Like when I think about some of the social work programs that we noted, like where is the shadowing? Where's the career exploration to know where your skills align best in social work? Um, because for me, my experience was that my program was heavily focused on micro. I didn't want to be a therapist. I already knew that going into the program. I knew that I'm a big, you know, picture thinker. I was, you know, advocating for policies for foster care youth for years. And it just seems like the program, they market a macro lens, but it's really not there. It's still being built. And so I would like to see a lot of programs be more inclusive of macro practitioners. Um, some of what I see at USC, as well as Columbia, I'm like, dang, I kind of chose the wrong school. Yes, I said it. Um, <laughs> mainly because you know, it's one thing to have this degree. And as a macro practitioner, we have to market ourselves differently in terms of like, we can go into many different fields, but what does that look like? And have we educated our potential employers about what macro social workers can do? I don't really see, you know, that. And then moving on to mentorship, when it comes to being a marginalized student, particularly those with multiple identities, as well as first gen, I would like to see a big push of like, faculty and staff going out of their way to like find some mentorship and supports for those students. And it needs to be beyond financial support. It really should be moving to them in a place of being a good professional, right? Because oftentimes when we see those who get mentorship, those are the students that know how academia works. They know how to navigate it. But for those that don't, why, why is it so hard to teach them? 
Why is it so hard to have like a first gen seminar about the do's and don'ts of academia? Why is it so hard to pair them with, you know, faculty? And it doesn't have to be black because truthfully, if we know that white people are the gatekeepers, you should probably try to be more intentional about making sure that marginalized students are building relationships with white practitioners as their network is much more, you know, bigger to get us a job. Because to be graduating these programs without a job is frustrating. And we can already see the, you know, difference in seeing my white peers got a job like that. And then for like the first gen or others, you know, students with marginalized identities, they're still looking. And it shouldn't be that way when you go to top schools of social work that work on themselves as number one, like where's the support? So that's something I would like to see change. Oh, as well as the funding gatekeeping saying. Andre? Y'all be asking some real loaded questions. Uh, <laughs> I would have to agree with Vivian. Um, and I know this goes beyond like the black experience, but I I even tweeted it today as as someone like Vivian said, I have never been a micro social work person, ever, never wanted to do it. Even when I had to, you know, be in a micro setting for placement, I I I learned and I because I, I had to and I got what I needed, but hated it. Um, I want to see more opportunities, first of all, for funding um, for macro social work students, because I, y'all correct me if I'm wrong, but I have yet to see a macro social work focused scholarship. Um, all the scholarships I've seen, you had to be focused in mental health or clin- clinical practice, direct practice. And every time I look for a scholarship to apply, I'm ineligible. So I think more scholarships should be um, in the macro space. But then I also think, um, and this is one of the things, again, now this will be a shameless plug. One of the reasons I, I, I'm very excited about the future of Black men in social work, I want to be able at some point to have some type of program where I could raise the money to fund men, black men, um, to come and uh, get scholarships, um, to to get a social work education, uh, to make it accessible to them, um, and then like create a center for social work education um, from a black lens. Um, I think that's important. I think it's very important. A lot of us, I'm sure, are familiar. And I'm meant to tell you, Vivian, I was at NABSW. Well, I've been there the last three years, so I probably saw you and didn't even know who you were. And I, I know Keith very well, who you mentioned, and we've worked together before, but I, I had to remember that before we got off. But NABSW, I think it's very important to be able to have those type of organizations more at the forefront, like the main social work organization. <laughs> Uh, I, I think it's I think it's necessary, but at the same time, I think that NABSW and some of these other black agent uh, organizations need to have the same type of clout um, in the social work space to be able to support their students. Um, NASW has its benefits, um, but I think that agencies or organizations like NABSW need to be able to be at the forefront for the students and the the practitioners that they support. So um, 
I think there just needs to be more support in those agencies that they can support us. Um, so more, more scholarships, more funding. Um, and people always talk about, here, here's my idea of how to answer this. Just like with the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor situation, everybody wants to paint a street, Black Lives Matter. That's cute. That's great. You can rename a street. You can rename whatever. At the end of the day, what are you doing to change the policies? What are you doing to change the culture? So to me, for whatever PWR, whatever school it may be, y'all could paint whatever black. You could change y'all, y'all's pictures black. I don't care. But are you hiring black faculty? Are you um, admitting black students? Are you um, really concerned about how they're being treated in the classroom? Are you concerned about how they get there, how they stay there? Um, what are the retention rates? Are you concerned about why the retention rates in the black community of your school is low? Um, because, you know, is, is Daquan walking to school because he doesn't have a car um, and you driving past him to get to your office and you don't care? Like, wh what's going on? Um, and so that's what I want to see change. I want people to actually put some skin in the game. I don't care about a black square at the end of the day if you're not going to change the, the actual framework. Like the black square means nothing to me. Just like I see a, uh, there's a city here in, in North Carolina that decided to provide economic uh, reparations to the city. And I'm like, that's nice and that's cute. Um, but where my check? I, I'm sorry, but where my check? Other uh, racial and ethnic groups get checks. Why can't I get one? So that's how I feel in this whole discussion. Put your money where uh, put your money where your mouth is. Like for real, just period. Andre, we're supposed to be wrapping up. Don't get me thinking about the lack of conversation about reparations and social work education. I'm sorry. <laughs> we need to do another podcast. I know this baby, could be a two-part series. It could baby, be a series, okay? Let's talk about reparations. Pay me my money. Thank you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to talk about the whole economic justice um, that's missing in social work education. Um, but yes, 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 I hear everything that you're saying. I will stand on that ledge with you and say, as we talk about NASW should have more anti-racist language in their code of ethics. You know who already does? NABSW. And we should turn around and look at the people who are already in the lead in those areas and follow them because black and brown folks have been doing this work for a long time. They, they are who helped us get to where we are, who help us get through this program. And we need to look to them to figure out where we should go next. Um, so thank you guys so, so much. Thank you for your vulnerability, for sharing your stories. Um, you all are taking a risk just by being here and being a part of this conversation and sharing your truths with me and everyone else who's listening. And that is not lost. Um, or, or I want to make sure that you guys know that that's really appreciated. And I recognize your bravery um, to elevate the voices of, of black folks in social work um, and social work education. So thank you guys so, so much. Um, before we go, I want to take the time to thank Shimon, who is the creator and host of this podcast normally, because um, he turned over his platform to a group of Black folks to tell their story. What an excellent example of what social work practice should look like, um, to recognize your power and influence, um, and to turn, it, turn over the spaces where you hold power and influence to the people whose voices are missing. And, and instead of speaking for others, yielding your power. So thank you, Shimon, um, for doing the work, literally. Be blessed, guys. Appreciate you.
Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.